I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back. We are very excited to present our conversation with Kevin Hazard to you all today. Uh, most, if not all of you, have heard Kevin's name from his uh, EMS uh, EMS community cult classic, I would say. A Thousand Naked Strangers, A Paramedic's Wild Ride to the Edge and Back, uh, which was published back in 2016. Uh, however, Kevin has been a paramedic for a, quite a while. Uh, he was a practicing paramedic on the streets of Atlanta from 2004 until 2013 uh, for Grady EMS in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Prior to that, he was an EMT for quite a while, but since then, uh, he now writes for film and TV with work produced by Hulu, CBS, ABC, and Universal Studios. Uh, his journalism has been published in several different publications, um, including, but not limited to, 99% Invisible, The Atavist, uh, Men's Journal, Creative Loafing, Atlanta Magazine, and several others. Uh, he still currently does medical relief work through Global uh, Response Medicine and is still a sought-after voice on emergency medicine and uh, current uh, EMS issues. Our conversation with Kevin, uh, we cover a lot of different things, and I'm not going to waste a lot of your time getting to it, but a big piece of what we talk about is Kevin's newest work, American Sirens, which is uh, a beautiful story of the history of EMS as uh at it as as it really happened and has rarely been told. Um, we hear about giants from EMS history um, in Kevin's story, uh, such as Dr. Peter Saffer, uh, Dr. Nancy Caroline, but most importantly, who we hear of are the people, the the men of Freedom House, uh, who actually were the nation's first paramedics and the adversity uh, that these men had to go through. We had a great time talking with Kevin, so uh, we definitely don't want to delay it any further. So let's listen to the conversation and what Kevin has to say. You know, it's it's hard to imagine a listener tuning into this conversation and not reading A Thousand Naked Strangers because that was, uh, I mean, that's kind of our audience. I think it's the kind of the, the occult folk, not occult, but you know what I'm saying, like the good sense of humor. Um but uh, if you don't mind, man, just introduce yourself and um, bring uh, bring us to how you got to work at Grady, how you got into EMS. You know, what uh, what brought you to this world, <laughs> to the world of EMS? <laughs> uh, I, I backed into it like almost everybody else, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, look, I was <clears throat> I was a normal person. Uh, regular civilian. <laughs> yep. Just, just doing, just doing my thing. And, uh, was out of college and, you know, was working as a reporter and bored as hell, you know, nine 11, uh, happens. And, you know, anyone who was around at that time mm-hmm. remembers that there was this crazy sense in there that like, you know, um, it's so much, it's so much different than where we are right now, but everybody kind of felt like we were in this thing together and there was, uh, I think a lot of us had this feeling that like I should be doing something that is not necessarily more or bigger or better, but something that felt more for the collective. Like, how can I mm. give back, you know? Um, and, you know, I saw I stumble upon EMS that, you know, I've told the story a thousand times and I yeah. won't bore people with it, but, you know, I covered a story that involved EMS and it was, you know, 
I think for a lot of people who, you know, you know, there's that small clique of people um, who grew up watching emergency and who knew from the time that they were five, that they were going to be a paramedic. But for the yeah. rest of us, something happens somewhere along the way. And it's just all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, here's this crazy thing that I can do. Um, you know, I can step through this world into this or through this door into this other world um, and have this crazy experience and someone's going to pay me for it. And when you're 24 years old, I mean, that's like a really appealing option. And I, at first I thought maybe I would be a firefighter because it seemed like it was kind of cool. Like you got to do a lot of fun stuff. But the second I was exposed to Grady, we did, um, we had, uh, well, Mel Teat. I don't know if you guys know Mel. Yeah. Yeah. He came He came and he helped out with my EMT class. My instructor had been a Grady medic from you know the early days. So I heard all these crazy Grady stories. And then Mel came in and there were some more Grady stories. And then we did our third rides with Grady. Mm. And uh, instantly I was like, oh, man, like this is this is where I this has to be it. You know, this is where I want to be. Do, do you think being a uh, being a journalist and somebody who appreciates you know, writing and the written word, do you think that that kind of played into how much, how much you enjoyed being on the streets? Like, do you think that you maybe saw some dynamics and some characteristics of the job that other people were overlooking? Like I definitely, I, I definitely got sucked into the weird, the, the other world, you know, um, yeah. you know, in a way that, you know, maybe a lot of people would want to, uh, you know, spend an afternoon at like Piedmont and Monroe or something because you can get all kinds of good food. I wanted to be, you know, at the corner of Sunset and Brawley. Um, I wanted to be kind of right in the middle of everything. I loved that weird, you know, I keep saying weird. That's not, but from my perspective, I love being exposed to something totally new that felt very extreme. Mm. Um, they were the things that were happening there, you know, that was the reason I got into EMS, regardless of what the call might be. And just to drive around those streets, which felt, I mean, you guys have been there, you drive around the bluff, yeah. it just feels, it, you know, it feels different from where I grew up. And so that like, mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of like, I don't know, it was almost a bit like watching a movie, you know, you're, you're kind of being transported to this, to this neighborhood where everything is, is, you know, the opposite of, of what you're used to and, and people's interaction with EMS was so strong. And then of course, Grady, you know, like, the, the the history of Grady and sort of all the stuff that goes into it, whether it's, you know, the fact that everybody else's fire base or, or mm -hmm. private company and you're this weird hospital base thing. And, you know, people are like, Hey, we're short on supply. So when you get in, they steal a lot of 18s. Um, Absolutely. You know, and just like the, <laughs> the fact that, that, that psych was on the 13th floor, you know, I mean, I just, yeah. I certainly fell in love with all of, you know, all of the eccentricities of that came with, with working a job there. So let me ask you to go back for just a second. Um, you, you said that uh, you're working as a journalist and you decide you wanted to um, maybe try this uh, EMT thing as, as instructors, you know, we get a lot of students that come in not having a clue about what actually being an EMT or a paramedic is. Do you remember that time where it kind of just <clears throat> either clicked with you? Like, um, yeah, this is really what I want to do. Um, or what, what surprised you most about when you, what you, what you were thought you were getting into versus what it actually was? I will say it turned out to be what I thought I was getting myself into. Um, the thing that surprised me was how much you have to be able to understand very complex interpersonal dynamics. Mm. You know, I, I, um, 
I've told the story before that early on in my career, we, we had this guy who was always angry when we picked him up. And he was just a jerk to everybody. And one day I pick him up. And you know how it is on an ambulance. Somebody can say something to you that will roll off your back. Where if they said it to you on the street and you weren't at work, like it would be a fight. <laughs> yeah. And it was just one of those days where he kind of caught me by surprise when he said it. And I just immediately turned around and started going back at him. And we, you know, we're in the back of the ambulance as, as occasionally happens. We're kind of jawing at each other. And I got control of myself. I was like, this is stupid. Like I'm sitting here arguing with this guy who's, you know, one step away from being homeless and goes to Grady, you know, four or five times a week. Like he has enough going on in his life without arguing with me. So I kind of backed off. And then I said, Hey, let me ask you a question. Why are you, why are you like this? Why is it that every mm. time I pick you up here, like, I just don't get it. This does, it doesn't have to be this way. Like, like this relationship could be a lot better. And, you know, up until that moment, he had been like really sharp and and just going at me nonstop. And finally, like all of a sudden this calmness settles over his face. And he's like, look, man, um, I have AIDS and mm. my family doesn't want to be around me. My friends don't want to be around me. So I'm going to die alone and I'm scared and I'm angry and I take it out on you. I'm 25, 26. Like I'm not equipped to handle that. Nobody had said to me, Hey, by the way, um, you're going to be dealing with people who are going through such extraordinary experiences that you can't even fathom. And you're going to have to find a way to like, um, you know, to relate to those people and to help those people and then not to help them in a medical way, but help them in a very like small, but very personal, mature way, which I was not mature enough yet to do that. And that was a huge. So to me, that was the biggest surprise. You know, all the other stuff, I entered into EMT school terrified. I thought for sure I was not going to be able to handle it. The blood and the trauma and all those things that, you know, stay in the job long enough, you will run on every call you ever wanted to run. Um, I got those. That to me was the biggest surprise. And in, in terms of like, like when it began to click with me, I got maybe a third of the way into that class and we were learning. And I'm sure you guys had the same similar experience in EMT school. It's the first time you're in a school where you're learning like practical skills. And, you know, here's how you recognize a stroke. Here's how you treat low blood sugar. Here's, you know, all these, like, here's how you, um, uh, deliver a baby, all these things that were happening. And that was like, that was a very, it was exciting, but it wasn't scary the way in the beginning, the thought of, you know, getting sent out to someone who'd been hit by a car and was, you know, dying at your feet was scary the way, you know, the way it can be when you first enter school, it was more like, wow, like I'm learning how to do this stuff. Like this is, you know, this is a legitimate skill. Um, and that was, I don't know, it was very enticing. And then at what point, what point in your career do you think, did you start thinking about, man, people really need to hear these? Or was that just a natural progression as someone who came out of journalism? Is it is it uh, like a songwriter? Are you always thinking about how you're going to put uh, what you're experiencing into words? I didn't want to do it at all. I, I resisted it. I, I, weird really? thing is, I, I I kept all these notes because I loved I loved the details. Um, there were these things. Uh, the fact that you know, if somebody wanted money, um, if somebody was asking someone else for money, they would say, "Let me hold five dollars." Um, mm -hmm. Or you would, you know, people would say instead of where I live, where I stay. Mm -hmm. um, nobody watched TV; they looked at it. Um, so I'd write down all these little things and some of the stuff that I saw and the way things would smell and feel because I felt like, oh, there's 
there's some sort of story in this world, but I never thought it was going to be an EMS story. I resisted that very, very, um, you know, for, for a long time. And then people are always, you know, friends always ask, you know, like, Oh, tell me some crazy story. Tell me, tell me some crazy story. And, you know, we've all had that moment where somebody asks you what's the worst thing you've ever seen. And you make the mistake of telling them you get 30 seconds into it and realize like, Oh, this is not what they wanted. What they really, (laughs) (laughs) nobody, nobody wants a baby in a microwave. You know, they want the funny story. Right. Right. So you, um, you tell the funny stories and then you get to telling them so often. And then, then you show up at a bar. They're like, Hey, tell, this is Steve. You Steve, listen to this story, man. Hazard, tell him this story. And you're like, dude, like, like Steve, I don't even know Steve. And here I am telling Steve how I found this guy with a shoe up his ass yesterday. And so I started writing, like I started a blog. This was kind of when those things are fairly new mm. and I started writing one. And what happened was maybe like six months into me doing these things. Um, I'd written like five, six, maybe. And I get this email from a friend who I had not spoken to in years. And he said, um, Hey man, I read this thing and, uh, it seems like your sense of humor. And I scroll through and it's like, this email has been forwarded. It, it made its way through both Australia and Scotland. Um, and it was one of my blog posts. Oh, no way. And it made its way home. And I thought, all right, it isn't, this isn't just a bar story. There's something broader here. There's a larger story that people are interested in. And that was a very first time. And that was probably 2010. Mm. That was the very first time that I thought, okay, all right, maybe, you know, and it took me a few more years before I did it. But um, that was the first, that was the first moment I thought, okay, maybe I'll, I'll write this particular story. And I love how you spoke about the interpersonal relationships, because I would 100% highly agree with you know, that was what I learned as well. I grew up in a very rural part of Georgia and it was a huge culture shock for me personally to work down at, at Grady. But one thing that I, another thing that I really appreciate that you touched on was how the community at large, for the most part, they loved you. Like they loved Mm -hmm. Grady. Um, you know, the, the rooters, so to speak, we know they would literally be happy most of the time whenever you're driving by, you know, I don't, I didn't experience that anywhere else I worked in my career, nowhere else I worked. I don't know, Jason, if it was like that for you anywhere out in Texas or anything, but not a bit, not a bit. No, it was unique and, and Atlanta is, is unique. Um, so Kevin, I don't know if, uh, maybe other people that you've talked to, does it seem like, uh, your experience was unique or, um, uh, you hear a lot of the same stories in a lot of the same urban areas? No, I think there there are certain things that are uh, universal. Um, you know, uh, certain communities rely on EMS more than others, and 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 that fosters a certain type of relationship between patient and provider that you don't get anywhere else. But the unique relationship between the community and Grady um, is not something. Like, I, I started out. I did a little. I did a short period of time at Rural Metro when I first got my numbers. It wasn't like that at Rural Metro, like Mm-mm. nobody down on old national highway, which is very similar, you know, from a demographic point of view to Bankhead. Um, nobody had those sort of like, you know, people didn't wave to you on the street. People didn't say like, oh, there goes Rural Metro. Whereas when Grady pulled up, like everybody was like, oh, hey, it's Grady's. Yep. Um, you, you know, it's, it, it is a unique, you know, people talk about being Grady babies um, th- their whole lives. They will, they will talk about that, you know, and, and as much as that hospital, you know, I think frustrates a lot of people. 
both patient and employee alike. Um, you know, it's this, it's this weird thing that we all kind of need, you know, we, we, you know, it's just, it's a huge part of the community. There's no other way to put it. And I think that's such an important piece. So as you were kind of set out to write your first book, um, a thousand naked strangers, what goes into the thought process of, uh, you know, you, people watch things on TV, they watch movies, they read other books where maybe they've uh, a writer is embedded with EMS folks and they maybe tend to uh, over dramatize or underrepresent or misrepresent um, certain situations. How important was it for you to really be objective without uh, kind of over dramatizing it for artistic effect or other means? Part of what I wanted to do with strangers was I wanted to tell like the Fargo version of this job, you know, like mm -hmm. I wanted every time, you know, I, I, I really didn't watch any of those other shows. Um, you know, there's so many EMS shows that are on TV and still are on TV. Um, the only book that I ever read was bringing out the dead, which I thought started out well, nice. but then it got kind of, <laughs> kind of <laughs> kooky. Um, but, uh, you know, I was like, where's, where's the version where there are two, guys who are very tired and just want to go home and it's the last call of their shift and they're standing over grandpa's body snickering because they're going to have to go in the other room and and tell grandma that uh, not only her husband's dead but he's got a cucumber sticking halfway out of his ass like mm -hmm. where was that version of this job yeah um and so I, that was a big part of it i wanted to tell the humor because we all laugh at each other we laugh at our patients. We laugh at the world. We laugh at everything. Like I wanted that to be a part of it, but then, you know, there's also all the other things that that we know that we deal with, and I wanted to express those to, you know, I, I like all the things that I felt like I wanted my neighbors or friends or whoever to know, like the parts that were hard, the parts that were really funny, the parts that were boring. You know, there there's a part of this job where, you know, <laughs> you spent seven hours staring at a windshield, you know, behind some grocery store parked next to a dumpster and you're bored as hell mm -hmm. and it's Christmas, you know, and you're like, really, this is how I'm spending my Christmas. Like my kids are home opening gifts and I'm sitting here behind the, the Kroger on, on cascade. It's at the mur murder Kroger. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So like it, it, all those things come in. So I don't know. I just, uh, I just did my best to to focus on the various experiences. I I pulled a, a lot of it was pulling music. I pulled a ton mm -hmm. of music that like from different eras and just listened to it. And I found weirdly that I could listen to a song and kind of remember like, oh, that's right, that's right. And like from, you know from different stages of my career, and um, I just wanted to tell some version <clears throat> of what what it felt like to me. And and you guys know like there's. There's a feeling when your patient has done something ridiculous and it's very funny and there, there's, you know, you're going to tell the story for 10 years. Mm -hmm. There are those moments where you're like, damn, like I almost got run over by that car. That was really <laughs> like, that was a crazy moment. Um, yeah. There are those times when you're standing on someone's lawn and you have to tell them like, yeah, by the way, you're, that's your kid back there in the shed and he's dead. Like, mm -hmm. and that's a heavy moment. Um, you know, all those things exist and they sometimes they exist in the same day. So I don't, it just kind of flow. I think it, I think it needed to come out because I got to be honest, it was a very, it was a pretty easy book to write. Like it didn't, mm. it wasn't hard. It just, it just, it just came pouring out. So I can't, uh, you hit my heartstrings whenever you were talking about music. 
because to me the the there seems to be a thread between strangers and um, American sirens in the history and the culture of both Grady, uh, where Grady originated and the story behind Grady, um, specifically in the racial disparities and things of that nature, and then transitioning to Freedom House. What do you think is is there a is there a connection between your your draw to Grady in the history? as well as your draw to Freedom House and that history? It's all kind of the same thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by particularly 20th century history, mm-hmm. you know, as it's shaded by, you know, um, kind of the, the rise of, of America, you know, from w- whether that's, that history is buttermilk bottom, um, whether that history is, you know, us allowing United Fruit to overthrow governments in Central America, whether that history is, you know, um, some, you know, strange tale from World War II, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, I'm fascinated by history, period. And, and if you're going to get into history, in my opinion, you got to get into two things. At least this is what excites me about it. Um, who was involved and where were they? Because I feel like people in place, there's so much of what um, like so much of the the flavor and the depth of what's happening is comes from people in place. Like where did something happen? You know, uh, music that is made in Memphis has a different feel than music that is made somewhere else. Music that is made by a guy in Memphis who had like a really tough upbringing mm-hmm. and, you know, just did his own thing and didn't have any kind of help and had to fight and scrape his way through every day, that's going to have a different feeling than anything else. So like all these things kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's a stew, a story is a stew and all these ingredients have to go into it. And in my personal opinion, the two most important um, ingredients to any story are people in place. And by the way, like read a novel, like a a novelist um, is someone who evokes both uh, story um, and atmosphere and story is, you know, is, 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 people is is this is a people in it you know the guy who wrote deadwood david milch he made a made this quote um or this statement one time and i'll paraphrase basically it was uh plot is the emotional reaction of the main character and essentially mm-hmm. like something has happened how i respond to it is the plot of my own personal story um you know so grady um the history of EMS in Atlanta, the history of EMS in Pittsburgh, um, the neighborhood that John came from, that you know, one of the main characters of American Sirens came from in Atlanta, the neighborhood he came from, Pittsburgh, those things, you know, seasoned him and created this thing in him that would not have, he would have been a different person had he lived in any other two towns. Um, and so, you know, to me, that's just where you have to start and so they they all kind of come back. All of my stories always come back to that. So was American Sirens, was that just a natural progression from this love of history? Or how did uh, that project come um, about? I desperately did not want to write a second EMS book. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it, it's, I got an email from, from someone who read Siren or Strangers. I was like, hey, you know... Um, read your book, liked it, but do you know how it all began? Have you ever heard of this thing called Freedom House? And I had not. And one of the things that struck me about that was my instructor 
He was one of the first six paramedics in the state of Georgia. Um, I mean, his number was like four, something like that. Wow. And uh, he, but he had these great stories of the, the days in Atlanta pre paramedics when those guys started out at funeral homes and working in hearses and embalming one night, transporting the next, you know, sweeping flower petals out of the back of the hearse to go run a call, um, not having any, any equipment, having to borrow a towel from, you know, the wife of the guy who's bleeding these ambulances racing each other to a call because the only money they made was what they charged. And, you know, mm -hmm. he would, he would hand out a, a credit card machine and, and, before he let his patient off of his stretcher into the, the hospital or the yeah the hospital bed, he would say cash check or charge, you know, with one of those like <laughs> old school things. And uh, so I was versed in the history. I knew that we had this thing. I knew that the white paper existed. I, I knew that that one moment there's funeral homes and the next moment there's Johnny and Roy. But I never stopped to think like, well, what's the bridge between these two things? How, how did that happen? You know, you hear about like, oh, there's the EMS Act of 73 or 71, whenever it was. And you think like, oh, that must have done it. Well, it's that's just not the case. And so when I started researching and realized that there was this thing, I was intrigued, but I didn't know that it was that it was going to be a story. You know, like, what does that really mean? Like, oh, there was there were some guys and who came out in 67 who were the first paramedics. All right. Like, okay. Um, but then the more I started to research them and realized like how they got there and the person who drew up their training program mm -hmm. and then, you know, who these guys were and kind of the, the neighborhood that they came from and, and how, what happened to that neighborhood was the same thing that was happening to neighborhoods all across the country. And so these guys become this microcosm for what's happening to people in, you know, low income majority black neighborhoods all over the U.S. And so, so suddenly it's not a story about paramedics anymore. It's a story about the U.S. in the 1960s. It's a story about how, you know, and of course this is 2020 when I'm writing it, but, um, you know, the story of like this, you know, how our medical system was not up to the moment, um, you know, at, at the time of the white paper. And so just a lot of a lot of really interesting, exciting threads were all coming together and nobody had ever sat down and, and connected them all. And it so seemed what like was that like when you, um, what was, tell us about that process of how did you even get in touch with some of these people and what was their initial reaction? I mean, obviously they have, uh, well, we know that they've tried to tell their story before, um, you know, in one of the documentaries that has yet to be picked up. Um, but what was kind of their reaction when you kind of reopened this? Pretty much everybody I called just started talking. It was not That's easy awesome. to find people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, these guys have been trying to tell the story since before I was born. So, you know, someone coming along to say, hey, I'm going to do this. It was definitely initially some skepticism mm. in terms of like, is anything going to come of this? Is this, you know, are you going to write some story that's going to appear in, you know, some newspaper in, you know, Topeka? Um I don't know. I don't know if they knew where it was going to go, but th there was almost no resistance at all. Or, you know, there, there certainly was not any concern about who I was. You know, I, I just called him up and, and said, hey, look, I'm a former paramedic. I wrote this book about it. Somebody told me about you guys. I'm, I think this is insane. This is fascinating. I want to know more about it. Uh, let's talk. And they just did. They just started talking. And then, of course, you realize instantly that the whole thing spills open. But I mean, it started out with honestly phone calls and phone calls and phone calls and phone calls. Just, you know, there were stories that appeared through the years. So I would scan them and pick up names and I would just go to various like directories of various cities and call everybody with that name. 
um, get hung up on a lot. And, Dude, you know, that's crazy. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, and then like hitting people up on, on Facebook, which, you know, that can be, that can be helpful. Um, you know, and just, just tracking down names, you know, and just tracking down people. And did you specifically John moon, did you know about his attachment to the city of Atlanta prior to, you know, working on this book or working on the project? No. In fact, it took a long time to get to that because mm. um, they had been interviewed dozens of times for either like a local newspaper or a city magazine piece. And nobody had ever told the big story. So they were used to giving, I say they, John and, and a couple of the people I spoke to, specifically John, um, were used to giving soundbite answers. And so he would just, you know, like I noticed some of the stories he told me I, I'd seen in other things. So I was like, oh, man, I, I've got to figure out a way to get this guy to just, just have a long conversation, just the two of us. Um, so I can get past, you know, 30 or 40 years of pat answers. Mm -hmm. And we were probably talking for the better part of six or seven months before I realized that at, he'd started out in Atlanta. His mom had died the way she died that he got adopted and that he really resented his adopted parents for years. Um, it took a while to get to that because he was just trying to give me sort of the pieces of this bigger story. And, you know, he was just used to someone sort of skating along on a very surface level. And, you know, I just kept going back and saying, well, well hold on. What, what happened here? How did, how did, how did this mm -hmm. start? You know, how did you get there? You know, who was living there? How did that happen? How did your mother die? Um, which is, an, let me tell you something. When you're sitting there looking someone in the eye and you say to them, hey, um, how did your mother die? It's a very wow. awkward thing to ask. But, you know, like, are you going to tell the story or not? And, and, you know, and he could have told me to, you know, F off. He could have said a lot of things. Um, but to his credit, you know, he he just was honest. And I think most people, when it comes right down to it, like if they're going to talk, they want you to get the whole story. They want you to get the story right. Absolutely. Did you, uh, did you kind of not forewarn? I don't, did you prepare him say, look, man, I'm going to ask you some questions that may be uncomfortable. I mean, or was it yeah. just casual conversation? Yeah. I, you know, the way I, I approach an interview, like a, I've never thought about it actually until this very second, um, you know, like a boxing match where you just try mm -hmm. to like, you, you know, you, you try to sound out your distance and then you, you you try to soften them up with some easy ones, you know, some light jabs. And then once you feel like you've got a sweat going and, and you guys are engaged with each other, then that's when you, you know, you throw the big one. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of how I usually do it is I just start the conversation and I do my best to let someone know that I'm emotionally invested. And then because you got to I mean, this is about trust. Um, if you want someone to divulge personal information to you, they have to trust not like like, oh, you're not going to tell anybody, but they have to trust like the person I'm talking to is wants to get this story right. That they're not as invested in the story as I am because it's my story, but they're invested enough to put in the work to really do it. And so that's not a question I would have asked the first few interviews, even if I had known, because, you know, that would something that's be that just feels like something you need to mm -hmm. earn. Well, and especially coming from people who have uh, mm -hmm. who have earned a lot of, or or have been um mistrusted and misrepresented and uh -huh. misquoted uh -huh. and um you know quite honestly just lied to mm -hmm. uh, i can imagine their apprehension with some of this yeah um it, 
describe to us a little bit, uh, you know, I, I can tell you that uh, I, I'm kind of in the same boat as you were. And I think a lot of people um, before reading this book, um, it's uh, it's it's almost a little embarrassing that we don't uh, teach this regularly or this doesn't become a part of us. I'll tell you that uh, in some of the EMT programs I've run um, in going through the history of EMS, I've loosely mentioned Freedom House, but really only um, because of Saffer's work with Freedom mm-hmm. House. Um, so can you kind of take us through a little bit of uh, kind of how that was, that relationship was developed a little bit? Because I think that's kind of fascinating, um, you know, just who Peter Saffer was and, uh, you know, being a, maybe a, you know, someone that's not from the United States, you didn't necessarily have all the same baggage that came with the uh, political climate that was happening in, uh, you know, the late 60s. Um, And so why it probably took somebody like him to kind of have this forward thinking uh, to be able to uh, be into that area and kind of have the vision um, to kind of pull off what he did. So, you know, Peter Saffers, he said he's not American. He's an Austrian-born, uh, and ultimately Austrian-born anesthesiologist, but he grows up in his family. His mother is part Jewish, not a lot Jewish, just like, you know, I don't know. I I, I forget what the percentage is, but it's not a large percentage. It's a small enough percentage that when the Nazis annexed Austria, her family, his family was not at risk of being sent to a concentration camp. But life was not easy for them. His mother was labeled a Michelin, which is the German version of a mixed thing, um, which means you're, you're partially Jewish. And she was a physician. Um, his parents met each other while dissecting bodies in medical school. They both wind up losing their jobs. Um, and they raise, uh, Saffer and his sister, you know, in the shadow of the war, the Russians are, are coming in. It's, you know, Eastern front was insanely brutal. Uh, it was an incredibly risky life that they led. His, his, in fact, his uh, Saffer's wife's uh, family ran a jewelry store that was bombed. Um, and you know, he sort of he survives World War II by the skin of his teeth. And between nearly being sent to the Eastern Front to fight the Russians, and you know, at least being under the shadow of Nazis, Judaism, Holocaust, he emerges from that. Um, with this tremendous sense of of both like survivor's guilt, why me and not you know seventy million other people, um, but also this feeling of being a world citizen that you know nationalist urges had created the greatest you know cataclysm that the world had ever seen. You know the history's you know most brutal meat grinder was uh, the you know the direct result of one nation. Um, you know, insisting on having its way over others. So he wanted to be a world citizen. He he emerges from that very much a liberal. And when, when, but he's also insanely smart and he's incredibly driven. And so he studied as a surgeon, knew that surgery was not the kind of place where he could make a mark and the world surgery had been around for a long time. And he was looking for a place where he could change the world. Comes across anesthesiology when he gets to the U.S. Because uh, back in Austria, it was still literally like holding an ether-soaked rag over a patient's nose. Gets wow. to the U.S., sees it. Oh, wait, we've we actually, you know, you you're you're giving IV medications. People are being innovated. This is a you know very advanced. So he switches, gets into anesthesiology, and it's while working as an anesthesiologist in Baltimore at Baltimore City Hospital that he's looking around, discovers um, two things kind of at once. One that 
the way that we did CPR was, or at least rescue breathing was totally ineffective. I mean, it was very much positional. Um, and also he came across a study that said, which is funny, you know, you think about it now, it's it's obvious. We know, it. we've known it for decades, but at the time this is revolutionary. He came across a study that said there was enough oxygen and expired air to keep you alive. People still thought that you could die by breathing or kill someone by breathing into their mouth, that there would be enough carbon dioxide to kill them. So, or carbon dioxide. So he, um, he says, okay, uh, I'm going to take these two things. I'm going to take this study about expired air. And I'm going to take my uh, skepticism about this positional form of rescue breathing, which wasn't rescue breathing. It was just trying to shift the body around so that the lungs would expand on their own by muscle contraction and let oxygen into the body. And he devises a series of tests. I mean, if you think about for a second how crazy this is, um, <laughs> he gets he gets volunteers and he says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to sedate you and you're going to lie on the floor for eight hours at a time. Uh, and you're not going to be able to breathe because you're going to be sedated and paralyzed. And then I'm going to use this method that you know, because I've told you is totally ineffective. Uh, <laughs> and when it kills you, which it's going to kill you, uh, I'm going to bring over a Boy Scout and I'm going to give him 30 seconds worth of training. I'm going to teach him how to do rescue breathing and he's going to keep you alive for the rest of the day. And he convinced people to do that. Bro, volunteer. He did not I mean, pay them. They volunteered. <laughs> I mean, think about, yeah. I mean, and yeah, this wasn't like, uh, you know, the old thing where like, you know, you're trying to get, um, you know, musicians and college students, uh, you know, to, to give blood or something like these are doctors. These are nurses. These are medical students. These are people um, who are financially secure, or at least are on the path to being financially secure. And um, they, he, they do it. They, they volunteer. He runs a series of tests by late fifties. He publishes his results, which, you know, leave no doubt the old method doesn't work. Rescue breathing does in fact save lives. He pairs that with chest compressions and boom, that's it. The single handedly, a single human being um, all by himself at 35 years old with no help from anybody and certainly no faith from anybody creates CPR, changing forever how millions of people will live or die around the world. Mm. And he you know, then takes that same approach to Pittsburgh. He he goes to Pittsburgh to open an anesthesiology department at Pitt. Uh, Pittsburgh at that time was as bad as any city in America for a TMS. Um, basically, what you'd have, depending on where you lived, would be the volunteer fire services, the police, or the funeral homes. Pittsburgh had the police. They were notoriously ineffective. Um, they didn't. They often did not show up to black neighborhoods. Um, they always showed up to white neighborhoods, but they never did anything. They didn't have any equipment. They had very little training. They would grab you, toss you on a canvas stretcher, put you in the back of the lamage, close the doors and drive away. And you would ride alone to live or die by yourself. So, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was essentially a cab. That's all it was. And, you know, by himself, again, he devises a paramedic curriculum before the word exists, uh, which is, you know, if you, it, you know, you guys are paramedics. Um, one of you is a paramedic instructor. You're well aware of what people are both taught and capable of today. Every single thing that we do today in 2022, turning into 2023, he came up with in 1965 when he sat down and drew up this program. I mean, like everything from you know telemetry to 12 leads to narcotics, cardiac drugs, everything you can think of. He, you know, it was all there, treating asthmatics, everything, the whole, the whole thing. Um, redesigns the ambulance because what we had at that time was either a hearse or some some version of of a paddy wagon. Yeah, puts 
he's the one who put the captain's chair at the head of the patient because mm -hmm. as an anesthesiologist, he was really determined that people would be able to manipulate and control an airway. He was the one who mandated wall-mounted suction. Um, you know, he didn't have people. He has got this insanely, you know, brilliant, life-changing idea. He hasn't got nobody to carry it out. Um, but there, there it is, you know, all by himself, he develops a paramedic curriculum. And then now he just needs to find some people to take this class. And that was kind of where, you know, again, you know, what you were talking about earlier, the story shifts from simply being a medical story to being a much larger, much richer, much more complicated, you know, genuinely American story. And that's, you know, what brings us to Freedom House in the Hill District. So in, in your research, um, Certainly, you have to make some assumptions here because you didn't get to uh, speak with Dr. Saffer. <clears throat> what was it about the this group of people that it's? I mean, it's fairly in, uh, take you know, it's fairly counterintuitive to take the uh, folks that are maybe not of higher education, and you know, if you're trying to start something that you want to be successful, maybe you go to uh, you know the medical schools or the graduate programs, and you take them and say, uh, we want these folks to be what would become paramedics. What was it about this group that you think he saw um, as uh, a group to go after uh, and um, still uh, uh, presuming he could be successful? Well, luckily, you know, he wrote about this and some of the people who were in the room talked to me. So I, you know, I was able to find exactly what was going through his mind, but essentially two things. One, people have been trying this for a very, very long time. And what they found was that doctors were not willing to do it and nurses weren't willing to do it. You were going to have to develop a new brand of professional. So that was one. The second was he needed to prove that this idea was reproducible. You know, mm -hmm. it'd be one thing for him to create a program in Pittsburgh that's really advanced and is very successful and that nobody can ever do again. That's that's not what he wanted. You know, it, at, right around that time, city of San Francisco has got this um, basically cardiac tech program. But it's run by all former World War II medics and 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 Vietnam medics. They had tons and tons of training, um, but all they could do is basically they were they were just cardiac techs. But very few places would have the pool of 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 guys who who had come back with that much training. Could, you could stick into a job like that. So like nobody else did that. You know, Belfast did it. It's like two cities in the world were, were doing this thing. It just wasn't reproducible. And so he needed, he needed ordinary, very specifically, I need people who have, who are not established professionals, who are not medical professionals, who don't have any kind of advanced education, uh, the sort of people who are going to come in and be this particular professional. I mean, he somehow was foreseeing 2023, you know, we, aren't we having a discussion right now about whether or not medics should have a four-year degree? You know, he was in 65, he's saying to himself, these are probably people who aren't going to have a four-year degree. Um, and so when Freedom House approaches him because their idea was, hey, let's um, let's create this very low-key ambulance service where we'll just take people to and from appointments, to and from the hospital. Uh, they have no access to healthcare. This would be great. You know, we'll have some local drivers, you know, put them in a van and we'll go. I mean, they were they were essentially proposing to him a wheelchair service. And he said, I have, I have zero interest in that. And I'm not going to do it. However, if you have the people for this wheelchair service, let's turn them into something real. And here's my plan to turn them into something real. And over the course of a two-hour conversation, he basically let, laid out the tenets for what would be this medical revolution that we now call the paramedic. Uh, and the, the guys who ran Freedom House were looking specifically for this kind of an opportunity. And it was a jobs training program, not just any job, but 
a real job, a job people could be proud of. And they listened to this and they said, well, damn, that's, that's what we want. If you don't mind, while we're still on the subject of Saffer, will you touch on, because dude, this really, this hit me hard um, reading through when he would actually stand up for his students while on clinical uh, because, you know, the patients did not want to be touched by a black man or they did not, you know, in the labor and delivery areas. You mind speaking on that for a sec? Because to me, that said everything I needed to hear about Dr. Saffer. Yeah. You know, as you guys mentioned earlier, he wasn't from the U.S. So he didn't have, you know, a good grip on racial politics in this country. But in his mind, you know, these were guys who were trying to perform a job and, you know, let them perform. How, how can you possibly learn how to deliver babies if you don't allow them into deliver babies? And, you know, whether like sometimes they would go into the ER and a nurse would hand them a mop, presuming them to be an orderly. Mm. Um, the nurses in the OB ward physically barred the door and would not let them pass. So he would just run down there. And, you know, basically, I mean, he's a very, he's a small guy. He talked incredibly fast, a really <laughs> thick Austrian accent. Um, and, you know, kind of sounded like a mad scientist. And he would go in and he had this wavy kind of crazy hair. And, uh, and he would go in and just have to try to convince these women that, no, no, you, you have to trust these guys, you know, and, and especially, you know, I know it still exists today, but particularly in the 60s, you have this group of black men and they are standing across from this group of white women, you know, that is, I mean, if you were to draw, you know, if you wanted to do the lazy version of a, of a, of a, of a, you know, hotly um, contested situation, like that's how you would, how you would draw it up. So, I mean, these are two groups that typically, you know, exist on the opposite side of, 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 of sort of like fear and, and frustration and, and misunderstanding. Um, and and he would have to find a way to bridge that gap. And he did it time and again. And to him, he didn't understand why it was a big deal, but he knew that it was. Um, and so he would just come down and fight for them repeatedly. And he wanted his his guys to go through essentially, you know, um, residency. You know, that's 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 what a medical student does when they finish in the classroom. They go through all these different areas and they, you know, and that's what he was building. Was his were those actions and that advocacy? Did John talk about that? Did did that uh, did that resonate within John? Like, hey, here's this guy who actually cares about me. I mean, what was um, whenever you and John were having those conversations? Did he ever speak about that? Staffer walking into the room was like the president walking into the room. Oh, wow. So it was he existed to a degree at a remove. Um, that's how he felt about Nancy Caroline. You know, but she was, of course, you know, she's a very driven person of her own mind, but she was handed Saffer's idea. And so, you know, all of that was baked in this idea, like you're just going to kick down doors and people are going to resist you and, you know, the hell with them. You're going to do it anyway. And Nancy being Nancy, she was always spoiling for a fight and she was always looking for, you know, anyone who was going to resist her. And then she would go and confront them. But she also was wily and, you know, knew that like there was a way to work the system and she would bring these guys into all kinds of areas that were labeled as restricted. And she would give them unfettered access um, and not just access, but she would empower them when they walked through the room. I mean, you know, you've, you've at some point or another, you have either been on a clinical rotation or, your patient has been so critical when you walked into the ER that you immediately get swept into the OR and very quickly realize like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm like, I'm a 
background instrument player in this orchestra. And I need, everybody wants me to just sort of hug the wall and stay out of the way. Um, Nancy would bring them into those situations and empower them to be upfront, asking questions, doing things, saying things. And that was huge for those guys. You know, they, they had a, if you, to this day, if you bring her name up around Freedom House Medics, the love that they have for her and the respect mm. and that bond that was formed over what was really, frankly, a short period of time, um, you know, it, it endures and it comes back to exactly what you're talking about, this feeling of like, you kick down this door for me, you, you, you help. You know, like her job, and I think I wrote it somewhere, like her job was to kick the door open. They were the ones who had to walk through. So, you know, she threw it open and then it was like, well, are you going to take this opportunity and make the most of it? And if you are, then go do that. You know, and that's the crazy thing about this story um, not being uh, told the way that it should have been uh, over the last, you know, 50 plus years is that uh, Nancy Caroline, everyone knows her because of her name on the front of the textbook. Yep. That's mm-hmm. what everybody knows her for, but that's not where her brilliance was. In fact, she um, she set the standard for EMS medical directors, writing, doing exactly those things that you just said, but also writing in the units with these folks, um, making sure the quality was there, going over, re-educating. I mean, she really uh, embodied what, in, what we want a medical director to do in 2023. Um, many of them fall short. Um, but, uh, to me, that's what she should be known for. Um, she was a pioneer in this and yet, uh, you know, everyone knows her for the textbook, but doesn't know really her, uh, what kind of person she was and the standards she set and the lives she impacted because, um, of, uh, those things that you just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and there was a, a human side to her, you know, this, there's this other part of her that, you know, this sort of very, um, adventurous and curious mind that was always reaching for something. And, and that was, you know, it l- opened the door for her to be something more than just a clinician. You know, she was, she was a human being on the ambulance. And it, I've talked to guys from Israel, you know, doing research, to try to figure out what, what it was that she did over there. They have the same feeling, you know, she is unbelievably revered. It's, 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 it, it, it's kind of shocking uh, when you talk to Israeli medics and they, you know, like she is the mother of the MS there. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, she also started their hospice program, but it's, it's her work with MDA, the national EMS system that, that stands out. You know, there was a, a very famous terrorist attack along the coast and she was one of the first people on scene. She spent the entire day there um, under fire, running in and out of a burning bus, getting patients, both Arab and is or Palestinian and Israeli, and treating them um, and bringing them to the hospitals while uh, PLO militants were still firing. So, you, you know, I mean, she was a like an incredibly dedicated person um, who left uh, a tremendous amount of awe in everyone who ever worked with her. And yeah, you know, we remember her as this name on a textbook, which you assume is like, oh, it's somebody who wrote a book and whatever. Um, you don't realize this, the depths uh, of the human being who's behind that name. And I mean, it's really it's remarkable. So Kevin, take, take us through kind of, um, you know, not to, not, not for any spoilers, um, cause we want people to, uh, really kind of get in. Um, you really got to read this book to get, kind of all the nuts and bolts and, and all the real history. Um, but, uh, 
take us through how successful this was and how did they actually, you know, measure that success? Um, not, uh, you know, not, not just scientifically, but a little, you know, anecdotally of, uh, you know, some of your stories of, um, people desiring, you know, for freedom house, uh, medics to show up, not the police department kind of take us through, um, on how successful the program actually became, uh, over the next, uh, uh, what was it? Five or six years. Well, it's wildly successful from day one. Um, it is clear the moment they hit the streets that this is a branch of medicine that is not only viable, but absolutely critical and no city can do without it. The study is done and, you know, the numbers are the numbers, but, you know, they, they do this study of critical patients transported by the volunteer fire department, the police and by Freedom House. And the police and the volunteer fire services are doing the wrong thing 70 or 80% of the time. And Freedom House is doing the right thing 80% of the time. So, I mean, it's it it, it doesn't even, it, it, there's no comparison in, in terms of what these guys are doing. But, you know, anecdotally, it's it's unbelievable. Um, you know, they, they were resisted heavily, heavily, heavily by the police for a lot of reasons. And there's a story that they all tell because it was screamed over the radio. Um, there's a child who's hit by a bus in a wealthy white neighborhood called Squirrel Hill. His leg was cut off. First police officer on the scene is panicking and he's screaming into his radio for help. And he says, send Freedom House. So a Freedom House unit jumps in their ambulance and they start driving. And the dispatcher says, well, that's out of their area. I'm going to go ahead and cancel them. Mm. And he said, no, I need someone who knows what the hell they're doing. Send Freedom House. Now, these were guys who were, who had been fighting Freedom House from the very beginning because A, Freedom House quite literally represented jobs that they were losing. Two, um, you know, it's really no secret that the police and and people living in black neighborhoods do not get along. Um, there's a long history of that. Uh, you know, and philosophically, they were on different sides of of what EMS should be. And, you know, that fight was was ugly and it was bitter and it was prolonged. It, it existed the entire uh, seven years that Freedom House was in, uh, you know, in operation. And yet here they were screaming for Freedom House. You know, there's another thing where in the mid seventies, this heroin epidemic had swept across Pennsylvania and finally reached Pittsburgh. And because Saffer was an anesthesiologist, he said, well, I know how to, I know how to reverse that. You know, we've got this drug in OR called Narcan. I'll just teach my guys how to use it. And they'll, you know, they get these people breathing again. Um, so they do. Uh, they go out and they start treating heroin overdoses with Narcan in the 70s, you know, which, of course, today is <laughs> about as commonplace as it gets. You know, every time police hear the word fentanyl, they're squirting in their faces. Um, but <laughs> but it, but then it was it was very novel. And and the deaths start going down immediately in black neighborhoods and they start going up in white neighborhoods. So people say, well, wait a minute, what's going on? Why is it that 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 these people that live over here in this, you know, this rundown neighborhood that has almost no city services, how are they surviving when we're dying? And the answer was Freedom House. You know, it was quite simple. So, I mean, you know, it, it, and, and if that wasn't enough to convince someone, the fact that doctors from around the country are coming in to say, you know, like, hey, what uh, what, what are you guys doing over here? Mm -hmm. You know, um, not everybody became you know, the next version of Freedom House, but an awful lot of cities uh, cherry picked either small pieces, huge chunks of the entire thing and brought it home with them uh, to replicate. And you touched on something there that I know you've spoken on this before, but to me, this is a subject that can't 
go untouched is the parallels between whenever you just brought up how it's no secret that, you know, black community and neighborhoods of that uh, nature and the police did not get along. It doesn't seem like anything has changed decades Mm -hmm. and decades and decades later. Is that something, if you don't mind me asking, if this is too personal, um, then we can cut this out. But is that something that any of the uh, any of the men that you interviewed to uh, build the body of this book? um, Is that anything that resonated through them? And is that something that, you know, what what brought you to realize that? John certainly talked about it when I would ask him, you know, he would he would sort of shake his head and say, yeah, you know, it feels like, you know, the more things change, the less or the more they stay the same. Um, But, you know, I wrote this book in the wake of George Floyd. So there's all this stuff happening. Mm. Um, There are people, you know, marching in cities across America. And, um, you know, we, it felt at least um, from my vantage point that we were as divided uh, racially as we had been in my lifetime. Um, and, you know, I'm writing this story about that essentially is about the 1960s. And, and I grew up thinking that the 1960s were kind of the nadir of, of, uh, us race relations. And, and here we were in that same exact position. Again, some of the things that exist in the sixties clearly do not exist today, but the fundamentals haven't changed. You know, um, people's view of one another has not changed. The fact that, you know, if, I mean, we've all spent time at Grady. Um, if you run a call on Simpson Road, you're not going to find a lot of white people. Um, and that is a neighborhood that you don't really want to spend a lot of time in, um, you know, on your free time. Um, those kind of things still exist and and will continue to exist. You know, those are persistent problems. And that was what they were up against. You know, the, what cr- the things that created their neighborhood, the things that created the need in these young men to try to do something with their lives, um, the things that created the backlash to their success, they're there today. And and they know that. And I think that's probably, for me, it's kind of like weird to, to like weird's the wrong word. I don't know what's the right word I'm trying to think. It's, it's sad, I guess, that we're still in that place. But I think for them, having lived through it once and now to be, to realize like, I'm going to die and it's still going to be here, I think is mm. quite frustrating. So when... Um... I forget when it was 1974. So 1975, when um, you talk about the uh, new mayor coming into Pittsburgh and uh, the dynamic starts to change over funding uh, and those kinds of things and kind of their um, Freedom House paramedics uh, job descriptions and kind of their opportunities when that those kinds of things hit, do those just become um, I, I don't really know how to not not the the usual way, but uh, do do they just kind of look at that and go, yeah, this is this is pretty much the way things go for these types of programs that they're not long lasting. Someone's going to come in and uh, and cut it. Um, were they surprised when that changed, or was that just kind of something that they got used to? I think they were surprised. It 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 followed a lot of patterns. But this was something that was beginning to happen. You know, emergency, I think, premiered in 1971. The nation is waking up to the new reality. And the new reality, of course, is that well-trained paramedics are on streets all across the country. So 
I think that they were as successful as they knew they were, as successful as other people considered them to be, and yet not only face skepticism, but very fierce resistance from their own local government, I think was a shock and an enduring frustration. I don't think that they expected to have good relationships with the police. I think they they knew from the get-go that that was going to be a very complicated relationship, that they were simply always going to be on the, you know, that power dynamic was never going to be in their favor. Um, but they didn't expect a city to continue to throw hurdles at them. They didn't think that they would have to fight for their professional lives every single day. And so, yeah, I think that was, uh, it was, it was, it continued to be a shock, even though they did their best to ignore it and tune out the noise and just go to work. Um, yeah, I think it was very hard to do. So why do you think, um, just kind of globally here, why do you think that this story has not been told the way it should? On the one hand, ambulances do not get the sort of attention, excitement, whatever that uh, fire trucks and soldiers and police do. It's just a different thing, even though it's not. Um, in people's minds, it's a different thing. So I think that's part of it. Uh, I think that's probably a big chunk of it. And then I think also um, the lion's share of of the blame goes to the fact that, you know, <laughs> we have watched Tom Hanks go to the moon like 50 times. Uh, and all those 50 times you watched Tom Hanks go to the moon, did anybody say the name Catherine Johnson? That just simply was not a part of our history that we valued and wanted to spend a whole lot of time shining a light on. And so it was always just, you know, like there are certain things that, that we revere and certain things that we don't. Um, you know, and the contributions of black Americans oftentimes have just simply not gotten the attention that they deserve. Um, well, actually, and, and you may have answered it. My next question though was, um, why did Johnny and Roy take off so much? What was it because of the, uh, do you think that was uh racial or was it just the, uh, the sexiness of a fire department, um, connects more with the general public. I think the sexiness of the fire department connects. I think their casting, I mean, let's be perfectly honest, in 1971, there's no way a major network would have cast, uh, even if they had decided, like, hey, let's set this thing after the guys, the first people. You know, but, you know, the funny thing is, is at the time that that emergency comes out, uh, not only um, has LA been beaten to the punch by Freedom House, but the LA firefighters still needed a nurse to ride with them in order for them to practice medicine. You know, they mm. didn't yet have the ability to do that by themselves, but I don't think that there's a, a major American network that would have featured a television show on prime time with one or two black main characters. I just don't, I don't think America was in that place. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been working in TV for a very short period of time. When I first started, somebody told me, make sure your main character is a white guy so people can identify with him. Felt weird to me um, in 2014 or 2012, whatever year it was for someone to tell me that, but there you have it. So I don't think that anybody was ready or willing or interested in telling that kind of story in 1971. And, you know, the truth is it is an exciting job. Uh, if you, you know, if you cherry pick the exciting calls, um, it's certainly very dramatic and it lends itself. I mean, those, those shows exist to this day. There are, you know, a jillion EMS shows on, 
So Johnny and Roy happened to be the first ones to come on and they, you know, they, they put a lot of uh, stock in veracity. You know, if you watch that show, like, you know, there's not a whole lot of like, you know, quick get the crowbar and crack his chest open so I can give him, you know, <laughs> um, you don't, you don't see that. I mean, there, it felt pretty real, but they weren't going to make those guys black. They just, you know, that wasn't going to no. happen. What do you think? And, and I know that uh, we're probably running close on time here. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. Um, what, and it's hard to, it's hard to put this question in the words, but what do you think, it would take in order for John and the surviving members of Freedom House. You know, I, I'm, I know that American Sirens makes them feel very validated and makes them feel like their stories being told for sure. What would it take, do you think, for them to understand that their legacy has not been ignored? It, it has, you know, resounded through the uh, current generations and that their story, their true story has been told. What, what do you think it would take for them to walk away feeling that? I think seeing their story taught in EMT schools, um, I think, uh, you know, there being some sort of larger memorialization of it, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how, how all those things work, but you know, uh, you know, that Johnny and Roy are they're, they're some of their stuff is in the Smithsonian. Um, not to take anything away from those guys, like, you, you know, this was not their fault. This was not a problem they created. But, you know, the fictional paramedics um, are in the Smithsonian. I, I think, you know, we, we could be honoring the legacy of these guys by doing something. That is where we put our national treasures. Uh, you know, this the very first police officers, I don't know who they are. Maybe somebody knows who they were. Maybe that history exists somewhere, but they're certainly not alive. Um, you know, we have the opportunity to mm. sort of literally reach out and touch, you know, among the first people. Um, and, you know, we should take an opportunity to do that. And, you know, so in those kind of places where we honor our national traditions, um, you know, that's where it should go. But I think people who enter the field, should just have an understanding of like, Hey, you know, back in the beginning, there was this group of guys who helped to pioneer the stuff that you're doing today. And, you know, I think that would go a very long way. Yeah. I would actually put out a call to, uh, people who, uh, write the textbooks. I think this should be the first chapter in the textbook of, uh, how do we get where we are and who, uh, were those that pioneered, um, the way for us to be able to do what we get to do. And, um, we, we certainly want to be able to honor them. Well, I, I want to kind of just, I'll wrap it up with me and, and Kevin, I'll just tell you that I was actually having a conversation recently with someone, um, actually last weekend about, um, uh, it's, it seems, uh, interesting that, uh, you know, kind of talking about people that write music. So lyricists, um, poets, writers, uh, to me as a, uh, as a consumer or as, uh, someone who, um, experiences that one of the benefits that, um, or, or one of the things that I get to experience is having people like you and others, uh, put, put words down on paper in ways that, um, I can't express myself yet. When I read them, I say, that's exactly what I mean. Um, and I think you have the ability to do that. Um, I appreciate how you have represented our profession, um, with, uh, objectivity, um, with, uh, 
with um, honesty uh, with, and with vulnerability. Um, I hope that uh, everyone that wants to go into this profession, uh, it becomes uh, almost mandatory reading for these two uh, books. And I, and I really mean that. Um, I think these uh, really set out a way of, uh, of not only expectations, but, um, you know, just the, uh, the truth and honesty of, of what we get to do, that it's not all about life and death. Um, very little of what we do is about life and death, but a lot is um, these uh, building these relationships and understanding people and impacting people. And it may take more than one um, contact with them to impact them. But to hear how you and others uh, have um, paved the way for us, I want to tell you that uh, I personally appreciate that. Um, and I, I, it means more uh, than you can imagine. You know, it's it's incredibly humbling. Anytime I hear people you know, not just about the writing, but um, uh, also, uh, you know, when somebody mentions, you know, anything about representing EMS in any kind of way, it's, a, you know, it was not what I was setting out to do. I didn't, I didn't think anybody from EMS would read any of these books, um, or at least the first one. Um, so it has been um, a very humbling experience to see the reaction that has come from it. And, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm honored beyond words by that. And, uh, you know, I, I will tell you that writing is a lonely experience with a ton of self-doubt. So anytime somebody says, Hey, uh, what you did spoke to me, um, it means a lot. Cause I can tell you each sentence in any book that you read, that's worth a damn, uh, the person who wrote that sentence, spent a lot of time thinking over it. and they were, they had you in mind. They wanted your experience as you worked your way through that sentence to be worth your time. Uh, I know cert that's certainly how I feel. So it, it is, you know, I don't take those sort of compliments lately. Awesome, man. So how can people get in touch with you or how can they find uh, your books? Uh, well, any any bookstore, man, uh, any local bookstore, it's out there. Uh, obviously, you can get it online as well. Um, I'm on all the social media places. Uh, <laughs> don't do a whole lot of TikTok dancing, but other than that. Good, good. I, I, I want to boycott TikTok, man. <laughs> That's one that needs to go away. <laughs> awesome. But I'm everywhere else, yeah. Right on. Well, man, thank you so much for your time, and uh, this has truly been an honor. So. Oh, well, I appreciate it, guys, very much. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.